Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome to a mini-episode of Cinematic Universe, the podcast that's all about comic book movies, which you can find at cinematicmultiverse.com. I'm your host, Joe Cunningham, and I'll be bringing you a truncated version of the show to bridge the gap between our The Mask and Captain America Civil War episodes. Now, a quick update on Civil War before we begin. So, the film is released in the UK on Friday. James saw it last week and has been sworn to secrecy ever since. I'm heading to a midnight screening on Thursday night and Seb will be seeing it on Saturday. So we're aiming to record the podcast on Sunday, and ideally we'll have it with you by Monday. Obviously, that's subject to things falling just right, but basically we will have it with you as soon as we can possibly manage. But on today's show, I'll give you my reactions to the comics that Seven James recommended on last week's podcast. Those were The Mask, Volume 1, and The Matrix Comics, Volume 1. But before any of that, let's take a look at some of the comic book movie news that has broken over the past week. We'll start off with Fox's X-Men universe, and Richard E. Grant has joined the cast of The Wolverine 3 in a villain role, who, according to The Hollywood Reporter, will be a mad scientist type. Now, we knew that Boyd Holbrook had already been cast as the main antagonist, so Grant's role could still be pretty small. Um, But in other late-breaking news, we've also heard that Stephen Merchant has joined the cast of the film. So basically, I think if you're a tall British actor, you better send your CV to James Mangold pronto. Speaking of The Wolverine, though, the latest X-Men Apocalypse trailer has, amongst other things, revealed Logan's inevitable inclusion in that film as well. Um, It looks like the reason our latest X-Film has found to give Jennifer Lawrence's mystique more prominence is the possible, probable kidnapping of Professor X by Apocalypse, which leaves a leadership void to be filled. Please step in, Mystique, you're our biggest star. I thought this was the film's strongest trailer to date by quite some distance, and the other real notable takeaways are that um, Quicksilver delivers a joke in an X-Men movie, um, whilst confirming that Magneto is indeed his father. Um, And there's also a potential hint that Mystique may, as is the case in the comic books, be Nightcrawler's mother, or he may just be recognising her as a famous mutant. Um, The biggest surprise to me was that Apocalypse's horsemen seem to have chosen to join him, rather than any kind of brainwashing or 
coercion, as I kind of assumed would be the case, but that might have just been me being slow for the past two years of following news about this movie. Um, the film hits UK cinemas on the May the 18th, so not too far away, and that's the same weekend as most territories around the world, save for North America, strangely, where audiences have to wait until May 27th. Um, to the MCU now, and Nathan Fillion appears to be returning for Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2, but in a new role this time. So if you can remember back, Fillion played an alien inmate in the first film, uh, but leaks from the set of the sequel seem to have revealed that he'll be playing the character of Simon Williams, aka Wonder Man. So set photos showed a cinema showing a Simon Williams film festival with Fillion's character appearing in a bunch of posters for lots of movies that have parallels in our world, um, including a Tony Stark biopic, which has a Steve Jobs-esque poster. Now, all of those posters could be as big as the rule gets. We don't know yet. And rather than explaining the character now, I'll probably ask Seven James to flesh Wonder Man, Simon Williams out on the next podcast. So for now, I think we should just note with intrigue that the Tony Stark biopic in particular hints that the scene in question is set in the present day on Earth and isn't a flashback to Peter Quill's childhood. So, hmm. Speaking of Tony Stark though, Robert Downey Jr.'s involvement in Spider-Man Homecoming has been confirmed, with the relationship between the two characters developing on from events in Civil War. Ultimately, though, this news came coupled with the blow that Michael Keaton would not be taking the role of the film's villain. And even worse, this news emerged just hours after we released our last podcast where we talked extensively about how excited we were to see Keaton in the movie. Now, that role will still have to be cast soon, so we imagine they'll probably be approaching Val Kilmer next, and if he says no, George Clooney, and if not, reboot the whole thing and bring in Christian Bale. One final note on the MCU, though, is, as expected, Inhumans has been taken off of its planned release date. The question with that film now will be whether it resurfaces as a part of Phase 4, or just disappears quietly, never to return again. Let's make a Spider-Man jump here and say that former Green Goblin, Willem Dafoe, yep, that's what defines him, has joined the cast of Zack Snyder's Justice League Part 1 in a mystery role, although it appears he'll be on the side of good in this one rather than on the side of evil. Um, Now, we can only speculate who he might be playing for now, but the options for Dafoe, given that it's been specifically said that he's playing a good hero kind of character would be maybe the unlikely possibility of an unannounced superhero, someone like uh, Martian Manhunter, or um, I've seen a whole bunch of characters mentioned to minor Justice Leaguers of the past, or there's the possibility that he's a member of one of the other members of the Justice League supporting cast, potentially setting up further appearances in one of their solo movies. Elsewhere, J.K. Simmons has confirmed that his role as Commissioner Gordon in the film will only be a small one, but that he's likely to appear in four or five movies further down the line. That probably then suggests that the rumour that predated the release of Batman v Superman that Commissioner Gordon was dead in this universe is not the case, because we can't imagine a Commissioner Gordon flashback role being fleshed out over five movies. And finally, on the small screen, Iron Fist has cast both 90210 and the following star Jessica Stroop and Banshee's Tom Pelfrey as Joy and Ward Meacham, with both set to be joining as series regulars. 
Now, the two characters are the children of David Wenham's character, Harold Meacham, in the show, with Variety reporting that the pair have spent their lives building Rand Enterprises only for Danny Rand to return to New York City after years away to reclaim his birthright. Now, they're probably not happy about that, and apparently, in the comics, they also want revenge on Iron Fist because they blame him for the death of their father. Although, we don't know whether David Wenham's going to die in the show, so take that all with a pinch of salt. Um, The report also added that they are the final series regulars to be added to the cast, so now I guess we just wait patiently on the news of any guest stars, but basically any potential Power Man team-ups, I think, as the series progresses. Okay, let's move on now to discussing this week's comic book recommendations. Uh, We'll kick things off, I think, with Seb's recommendation, which was the very obvious recommendation uh, last week, The Mask, um, in stark contrast to James's very tenuous recommendation, which was the Matrix comics. Um, And um, so there is an omnibus of The Mask which collects The Mask, The Mask Returns, and The Mask Strikes Back. Um, Now, I just read the, the first of those, The Mask, which is essentially volume one, um and um basically just because it's it was it's very long there's um this is 150 pages of content and also there was a lot of the matrix to get through so uh, i could only manage the first volume this week but um spoiler alert um i liked it enough that i'm i think i'll probably carry on and persevere through the other volumes um i was intrigued just enough and i think um i think the the place to start here is I was quite surprised by how much of the stuff in the mass comics actually made it to the screen. I mean, Seb last week mentioned stuff like um, him turning the balloon animals into a Tommy gun and and that kind of stuff um, being imagery that makes its way into the movie. Um, The mask looks, when they put on the mask and they become Big Head, as he's known throughout this volume, um, he looks a lot like the Jim Carrey character. One of his first suits is, um, it's not, it's not quite the same, but it is a yellow number like in the movie. Um, it's it's more the the stuff with the mask rather than the the characters without the mask on that reminds me that reminded me of things from the movie um but yeah there is there's there's a lot of stuff kind of like with the confrontations but they tend to be a lot more violent and graphic and bloody and explicit um there is one particularly nasty bit early on where when he goes to the garage to uh, take down the two mechanics who have kind of screwed him over, uh, which is a scene from the movie. Um, in this one, he jabs a load of um, like wrenches and crowbars and stuff through one guy's head and hangs him from the building. While another guy, he stuffs a muffler down his throat so that his head kind of forms the shape of a muffler by the end, almost like his skull has been replaced by the... Oh, it's it's um, it's nasty. Um, he goes to a school and murders an old lady who used to be his teacher. Um, this is all Stanley Ipkiss, by the way. So the kind of the first 50 pages of this is Stanley Ipkiss, and then it becomes the um, the Peter Riga police officer who um, who puts on the mask for the for the next hundred pages. Um, and Stanley Ipkiss in this is um, a real a real dick. Um, he kind of starts off in a similar place to the Stanley of the film, in that he's a bit of a he's a bit of a sap. He's a bit downtrodden, um, except 
Whereas the Kerry character seems kind of oblivious to the fact that he's downtrodden, um, doesn't kind of... So the scene at the start of the movie where the girl is kind of... She takes the two tickets for the for, for whatever it is, the basketball or the movie or whatever they, they he got tickets for and takes one for her friend rather than going on a date with him. Um this, this kind of that sense this character that he's a bit he's a bit of a sap he's a bit downtrodden that people don't take him seriously um except whereas the carry character feels oblivious he is angry at the world for it um he yeah he he um he he reminds me of the kind of guy who would probably angrily frequent internet comment boards uh comment boards if they existed back then um but yeah so he puts the mask on and basically uses it to take revenge on anyone he felt ever wronged him and so he starts and he starts dressing in his normal time in kind of military gear and starts writing a list and um crossing names off the list as he takes them down um and he's a nasty piece of work basically there is the implication which i did quite like which was that the longer that the characters wore the mask the more and more it took over them and the more and more it affected them in in real life um it's almost kind of presented as kind of like a drug like the the characters are slowly becoming kind of junkies and craving their next mask fix and um even when they try and keep like some there is a particularly with the second character the police officer when he tries to um prevent himself from wearing the mask whenever he wants because he kind of realizes in a moment of uh of clarity that he he sh- probably shouldn't be wearing it all the time and taking the law into his own hands, um, so he kind of he locks the he locks the mask in a drawer and gives the key to someone else, um, only for a really great cutscene reveal later on for him to we see that he has axed through his desk to get into the drawer to put the mask on. Um, yeah, so the Stanley Ape Kiss thing kind of re- resolves itself by him being he he kind of is able to take revenge on all the people he wants to. Um, and his girlfriend is kind of slowly figuring out that he might be the mask, um, as this is going on. Um, and so he kind of takes his gruesome bloody revenge, um, and gets, gets home, takes the mask off. Um, and then off panel, his girlfriend picks up the mask, puts it on, shoots him and kills him. Um, and that's the end of him. And she then gets rid of the mask by taking it to the police station and, and giving it to, uh, I think it's Lieutenant Kellerman is his name. Yes, yeah, Kellerman. Um, and so he eventually tries the mask on and he decides to use it to kind of uh, fight the criminal elements in the city. Um, and so he and he kind of comes becomes a little bit Punisher-esque because I wondered whether he was going to, when he put the mask on, that he would use it for good so he wouldn't kill. Um, but there is... There, there is the sense that the mask is kind of a completely different personality. There's point, especially when Kellerman finally takes off the mask at the end. Uh, there's the sense that there's there's kind of two characters, there's two people in his head while he's wearing the mask. It's it, he's like Gollum basically talking to himself at the end of the Two Towers. Um, it, it's like it's like that kind of thing, and. Um, they kind of coexist for most of Kellerman's um, adventures in the mask. 
uh, only for Kellerman to kind of start to fight back or resist a little bit more towards the end. Um, there's a really fun bit at the start of the Kellerman stuff where he's testing it out. He's hitting him. He's testing out the mask. He's hitting himself on the head with a hammer and shooting himself in the hands, and he's kind of discovering that he can regenerate and doesn't feel pain and. Um, there is a sense that always that characters in, enjoy putting the mask on and they kind of they kind of revel in it. But Kellerman does, even though he is going out trying to do good and clean up the city and kind of take on the big mobsters in the city, um, he does still kill and kill pretty brutally. And it's not it doesn't have the same kind of nasty streak that it does with Stanley Ipkiss, but it's still not pleasant. Um, you can you can really see why someone at a film studio saw this concept on the page and when we could make a horror movie out of this um this this is quite often the mask makes himself look like other people when he's wearing the mask and this isn't a thing that happens in the movie or not that i can remember anyway where he kind of looks like a normal human um or someone completely different and then kind of he often rips off the skin from his own face and again in quite a bloody fashion um to reveal the green big head underneath um and yeah that's it's um there is there is something pretty scary about this guy and i don't know how it progresses as things go on but you know you're seeing you're seeing here particularly in this in this kellerman arc a guy who is basically good basically just wants to shut down the bad guys but it becomes com- completely consumed by the the nastiness of the mask um and yeah like i said he kind of becomes the punisher he just kind of goes around indiscriminately p- taking people down and seems to become more and more dependent on using the mask to do so and he's trying to kind of manage his daily life as a police officer with being the mask and also not being caught being the mask he's also supposed to be investigating the mask for his actions when Stanley Ipkiss was wearing it. As far as the police are concerned, there is still this masked freak on on the run and they need to take him down. And they're just slightly puzzled that this guy who was kind of a serial killer, he's still a serial killer basically, but he seems to be a vigilante now. Um, and Kellerman's at least able to hide behind that by saying, oh, well, you know, the guy we fought before wasn't a vigilante, so this can't be him. Um, eventually, Kellerman does kind of take down the bad guys, uh, takes down the mobsters, um, locks up some of them, kills most of them, um, but loses his job in the process because he kind of has to publicly enter a building where a lot of these criminals are, takes them down as the mask, but then kind of takes the credit as a police officer. Um, the stuff at the end, he basically starts... The story for Kellerman resolves itself with the mask taking down the captain or, tr- like, getting angry and stopping the captain and his partner from leaving a crime scene. Uh, tries to kind of blackmail his captain into giving Kellerman his job back. Um, and looks like he, he could be about to kill the captain, at which point his partner steps in, his partner stands up to the mask and they start fighting him. Um, the mask beats the crap out of, so Kellerman in the mask beats the crap out of his own police partner. Um, only to have that kind of, that moment at the end where he's kind of 
talking to himself. So he shoves a stick of dynamite in his partner's mouth and says, let's see how tough you are. And then you see this look in his face and he says, good God, what am I doing? And then it flicks back to the mask and he says, you just let me handle this my way. Trust me, this guy's nothing but trouble. And then he flicking back to Kellerman, no, no, it's you. You're nothing but trouble. And then he gets rid of the dynamite, blows it up. And then we see um, a cut to Kellerman burying the mask in concrete underneath his house. Um so uh yeah I I'm intrigued <laughs> intrigued how how that uh how the mask returns because it says at the bottom the mask will return and then the next volume is called the mask returns. So I trust that that uh, he will be back and I assume that Kellerman will have to stick around a little bit as well. Um but yeah I I really liked that dichotomy at the end of the of the the kind of the guy wearing the mask and the mask being able to coexist it's it's done i think in a little bit um in a little bit more less of a kind of combative way in the movie with stanley being able to kind of uh gain more control and more uh acknowledge more his actions and understand and remember his actions i guess in the movie, um, but the mask. While I say he is, he kind of he's creepy and he kind of has an edge to him in the movie. He never does anything too horrendous, so it's it it doesn't seem like it doesn't seem like it would be quite as difficult for Stanley and the mask to coexist in in the movie version. Um, whereas, yeah, this this was interesting towards the end. I'd say um, one thing that I really liked here was the lettering. And I don't think I've ever said this on uh, the podcast before. Um, I, I always see kind of that people are responsible specifically for the lettering in comics, you know, on credits pages. And I kind of, uh, I, I guess it, I guess I just don't know what their job involves. Um, I, I suppose it must be fairly important. Um, this just seemed very clear. <laughs> there was this was noticeable lettering because when the mask is talking, his he doesn't have like nice round speech bubbles. He has like um, jagged edge speech bubbles, and his his um, his speech is all in capitals and in weird kind of uh, scrawly writing, um, which I, I think gives you a better sense of uh, the way the character is speaking, um, and certainly you know, shows more of a a transition between the Eva Ipkiss and Kellerman. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The mask. Um, and it works really well on that last page because you are very visibly seeing the switch in voice between the mask and Kellerman. Um, and yeah, I I um I enjoyed these mass comics. I was surprised by how much they were similar to the movie. Um and yeah, I look forward to exploring them a little bit more. Um there is they are they are funny. It's more of a I, I would say a dark twisted humor in the comics and it's it's nowhere near as flat out comedy as the movies. Um but I mean, I, actually reading this as well, I kind of for oh, it's disappointing that they didn't do another mask movie. Um, it would I, I almost think if they could have convinced Jim Carrey to come back and do a little kind of cameo and given the mask over to somebody else, maybe a Cameron Diaz mask sequel. In fact, should we just do that in 2016? Could someone get in contact with Cameron Diaz and say, hey, we want to do the mask two, where you're the main character and we have a Jim Carrey cameo and uh, that's all we need. And we find a new dog for you to hang out with as well because you can't make a mask movie without a dog. Um, hey, that would be, that's a pretty good pitch. Should have found a way to work that into the main podcast. Um, but that was uh, the mask comics. Um, so again, uh, from John Arcudi and Doug Mankey, the first volume there. Um, I will move on to the matrix comics, which, um, are from various people, that's fair to say. <laughs> so I'll just go through uh, the various stories that are in this collection. So this is volume one of the Matrix comics, uh, which were originally published online, are still available online in archived versions, um, although they're not still they're not still up on the Warner Brothers site. You have to kind of go through an archive to locate them. Uh, you can also buy them collected into a paper volume uh, called The Matrix Comics Volume 1. Um, you can find that on Amazon, uh, sold through kind of second-hand dealers on there. Um, and so this, it collects 1, 2, 3, 4, 12 stories. Um, and so the first one is called Bits and Pieces of Information, uh, written by Larry and Andy Wachowski, uh, or at least that's what they were called at the time, I guess, uh, Lana and Lily Wachowski now. Uh, so that is, um, a story, um, a, it, it's kind of ties into one of the stories that was in the Animatrix, um, series of short animations, um, which is, which goes back into the history of the Matrix and kind of one of the things that one of the kind of big inciting events at the start of the human android war. Um, there is a story called Sweating the Small Stuff, uh, written and drawn by Bill Sinkevich, uh, A Life Let's Empty by Ted McKeever, Goliath, which is a short story which had its uh, and it had some illustrations added to a later date. That's written by Neil Gaiman, and the illustrations are apparently um, from Bill Sinkevich again and Gregory Roof. Uh, there is Burning Hope, written and drawn by John Van Fleet. Butterfly, 
again, both by Dave Gibbons. A Sword of a Different Colour, Troy Nixie. Get it, Peter Bag. There Are No Flowers in the Real World, David Lapham. The Miller's Tale, Paul Chadwick. Artistic Freedom, written by Ryder Wyndham and drawn by Killian Plunkett. And then Hunters and Collectors um, from Gregory Roof. And so I won't go through all of these. The bits and pieces of information is fun if you uh, if you can remember the Animatrix and really invested in all that kind of uh, the the lore of those of of the Matrix world and how everything came into being in the first place. Um, and you know that that is directly from the Wachowskis. Um, it's a it's a short bloody story um but has has some nice i think emotional heft underpinning it sweating the small stuff um i quite liked from a character point of view um so this is the bill sinkevich one um it's the the story is you know not that important in the grand scheme of matrixy things um but there is um there's a really nice touch it's just it's a really nice thing that probably could have only worked in comics form of a character kind of um starting to see the joins in the matrixy world and starting to see the kind of the reign of numbers rather than there's just a fantastic image of a guy pouring sugar into a drink and slowly the image changes from the white sugar into the green numbers falling down into the cup um and uh yeah uh, i i that that was one of my favourite of the stories. A Life Less Empty was the one that I was uh, the most intrigued by uh, from the concept. This is um, supposedly about... Um, was this about a character who had met Morpheus and had been given the choice between taking the red pill and the blue pill um, and chose the blue pill and it's just this, this character grappling with the heft of knowing that they kind of threw away the big opportunity of their life um, and the torture of not knowing is worse than anything that they feel could possibly have followed. Um, my favourite though, we'll get to now, by a country mile, and I kind of feel a, a, it's a little bit blasphemous saying this, uh, talking about comic book recommendations each week on, on these mini-sides, um, the Neil Gaiman short story was the thing that I loved the most here. Um, there, as I said, there are some illustrations that were added at a later day, um, I assume, for the printed collection. Apparently, this just appeared as a short story online to start with. And Goliath is... Um, it's, it's probably the, the story that kind of... Um, expands the idea of the Matrix universe more than anything else um, because it brings aliens into the equation. So there's not just humans and machines, there are aliens as well. Um, But really what's great is this character at the centre of it. Um, I was just trying to look down and find his name and I'm just reading in this Matrix Wikipedia that I'm looking at that um, he's unnamed, which, you know... Probably should have guessed, like, getting to the end of Layer Cake and going, oh, yeah, they never told me what his name was. Um, but so the protagonist of the story um, lives in London and he's kind of going around his daily business. And then at one point in his life, kind of everything kind of falls away. And this guy starts 
he kind of enters this different kind of world and this guy starts talking to him and says, oh no, there's there's been an attack, everything will be back to normal soon. And he kind of seeps back into his Matrix world and has experiences a bit of deja vu and, and then goes back into his life. And then a few decades pass and he's on a tube and he goes through a station. Uh, I think he goes through Houston station and people get off and then he's going through a tunnel and then he gets to Houston station and people get off and then he's going through a tunnel and he gets to Houston station and people get off. Um, and there's this great moment. This girl next to him passes him a note and says, are we dead? Um, and uh, again, things kind of fold away and the same guy from before starts talking to him and he's like, He's like, oh, did you know the last few decades feel like they've gone particularly fast? We had to speed things up. Um, sorry, we, you know, we've had this, had this error, um, and then he kind of um, so he starts dating the girl next to him on the train, um, and things. Then I'm sorry, I know I'm going into a lot more detail on this one, but it really is my favourite. Um, and then things, um, all of a sudden, he wakes up and he's. I think like 19 years old again and kind of uh, is able to experience his life all over again, except this time he's being trained as a pilot and he becomes a more and more, um, he, he gets more and more opportunities as a pilot to the point that he kind of starts flying these secret military planes and then like UFO-esque planes that no one has, not even the president of the US would have the, you know the the knowledge of um and it turns out that the machines have been essentially training him in the matrix until they eventually pull him out and say hey these attacks that you know caused the problems with the matrix before which is when you were aware of our existence when you had the deja vu um aliens have been attacking and they've been they took out one of our big um like computer processing places and so we've trained you as a pilot so you can go up and kill the aliens and basically save the world. Um, and he does it. And so in the in the real world, he flies up into space and fights these aliens. And I'm not sure how appealing this sounds from this explanation, but um, it's really powerful, I think, because of the characters. And like I said, there's only, there's just a few little images running through this. Um, you know, the illustrations that accompany it. Um, it reminded me a bit of some, uh, weirdly, some of the early Daredevil comics that I was reading um, way back just after the Kevin Smith run. But the story reaches its crescendo after he fights these aliens, he destroys the aliens, saves the Earth, and then the aliens, and then the machines who are in contact with him tell him, you can't come back down to earth you know we never designed the ship to come back and also we've armed you with such powerful weapons to take down these aliens that it, you would be a threat if we gave back if we gave you back the you know the ability to return to earth you know you're going to die up there and so he asks them if they will plug him back in he's only got an hour left to live in the ship but if they plug him back into the matrix he can go and exist there for the final 57 minutes of his life. Because time functions differently, as we kind of has been established earlier in the story, that time flows at a different rate in the Matrix as it does in the real world, those 57 minutes can be a lot longer in the Matrix. And so 
I think I'll just read out the... Well, um, I won't read it out at all, but basically um, the character says that, you know, that that was 15 years ago that he was plugged back in. And he went back in there. He met the girl that he lost a previous time around. Susan, the girl that passed him the note on the train. They got married. They had a son. Um, And there's just some really fantastic prose for like three or four paragraphs at the end. Um, And the final line, which I just thought was fantastic, was the character saying, I'll die soon. But the last 20 minutes have been the best years of my life. And uh, yeah, I fell in love with this story. And I haven't read an awful lot of Neil Gaiman. Um, and I'm just at this, if if nothing else, you know, other people telling you for years that you should read someone um, doesn't do as good as actually reading something fantastic by that person and uh, going, yeah, I'm going to I'm going to have to go do that, aren't I? So, yeah, that was if um, if I've got any recommendation this week, it's that short story that's got a couple of illustrations, the least comicsy thing here. But, yeah, um, it was uh, it was pretty fantastic, I thought. Um, Burning Hope is a story, um, as, as far as I can tell, that is just basically about the discovery of a person who can change their appearance within the Matrix. Um, I'm not sure. The the character is called Hope, and I'm not sure whether that was establishing something that would be important for the movies. Um, If you've been following me on Twitter, you might have seen that I I have so little memory of the second and third movies, despite loving the Matrix uh, and watching it on repeat. Um, I just could... I, you know, I, I can kind of remember action beats of those stories and certain characters, but, I, you know, I couldn't genuinely tell you which of the main cast live and die by the end of that. So that was my main my main issue as I was getting further through these was trying to remember, you know, kind of, oh, did, did that have any impact on things as they went forward? You know, were these... You know, is that concept that's established there, does that chime with what we learn in the sequels about the world of the Matrix? Because it's a world that to me seems so well drawn in that first movie, um, but then becomes so confused and so, you know, utterly meaningless and irrelevant as you get through the sequels that I genuinely can't remember how things play out. So I don't know, someone changing their appearance in the Matrix, I guess, could be important. Um, I've no idea. I've really no idea. Um, I've got to be honest, I think this is the part of... This was around the point in this back half um, of stories that I started being a little bit less taken with the Matrix comics. Um, They kind of uh, petered out a little bit for me. Uh, Butterfly, I think, was... uh, So that's the Dave Gibbons one. um, Was some... uh, really really wanky stuff about a character talking about whether he's a butterfly or a human i don't i don't know it was boring i didn't like it <laughs> hashtag analysis um a sort of different color was a pretty fun one about a guy who gets saved by a character who has no concept of the matrix and has kind of lived on his own in the real world um and so kind of doesn't understand how the world functions so he just sees himself as kind of like an Arthurian legend kind of knight and that the sentinels are dragons who he's going to take down. Um, uh, so that, that was a fun little story set within the the Zion world of the Matrix, I guess. 
Get It is a really fun little uh, meta story about characters within the Matrix going to see the Matrix, one guy not getting it, and then his friends trying to explain it to him, only for at the end his friends to reveal that they are thrilled that he didn't get it because they're in fact agents and uh, they don't want anyone to get this movie that stars Keanu Reeves because if they do they must, might start to realise that it's for real. Um, there are no flowers in the real world. This is story of a guy called Rocket who his all his crewmates are killed while on a mission. Um, apart f- uh, apart from him, so he's surviving in his ship. Except he can't get out of the matrix. He can't get out of the matrix until someone gets to his ship to extract him. So he's kind of waiting on people in the real world being able to in- extract him while his body slowly dies. Um, and so he starts to become weaker and weaker within the Matrix as well. Um, it wasn't a great story, but it has a really great ending where um, a an agent finds him just in time, and the agent has taken taken over the body of his of the love of his life. So, kind of the reason the agent is able to kill him is because he hesitates in shooting his girlfriend to stop the agent from killing him. So he's killed by the agent. Uh, which is very sad. The Miller's Tale I actually quite liked, um, which is uh, about a character who makes it his life's mission to start um, making bread in the real world because all they've got is that porridgey style protein mush and he wants them to have bread. Uh, he kind of sees it. Uh, he, he gets the idea from watching a movie on a DVD um, and uh, yeah, sees it as kind of like a symbol of hope for the people of his new world. It's quite a nice, sweet story. Um, Artistic Freedom is the penultimate story in this volume, um, which um, invokes Spoon Boy from the original Matrix movie um, and is about a character who has a vision of the real world except thinks it's just a nightmare and starts crafting sculptures of the uh, Sentinels um, and is kind of summed up when the the spoon boy tells her that seeing, uh, believing is not enough. Um, understanding, believing what you see is not enough. Uh, understanding what you see is the key, um, which is obviously something that she has been unable to do. Um, and then the final story, hunters and collectors. Um, again, uh, kind of uh, Peter, the indicative of this stuff petering out for me uh, with a character who kind of he's referred to as Ahab on the first page. I think his real name is Nova. Uh, he's a hunter, um, or a collector, sorry, an archaeologist in this world, except he is with a team of people who dies at the hands of a sentinel, so he makes it his mission to go and hunt that sentinel down and kill it. Um, he is killed in doing so, and um, there is a girl who was born outside of the Matrix who kind of um, is able to kill the sentinel for him after he dies, and uh, but decides not to tell anyone that he's been killed by the sentinel so that his legend can live on. Um, and I, I thought these were a nice, generally a nice mix of stories that, you know, play into the Matrix history, riff on ideas within the Matrix, tell new stories in the in the kind of the main world, um, tell stories that feel like they could be part of a Matrix film. And, you know, I guess it would have been quite fun at the time. I think if I'd have read this at the time or if I'd known about these at the time, um, I would have loved them the same way that I loved the Animatrix. Um, yeah, hit and miss for me, but like I say, I, I you know, I, 
I'm glad I've read this just for reading the Neil Gaiman short story, which was fantastic. And while possibly I don't know whether it breaks official Matrix canon, I'm not sure whether all these are considered canon. Um, but hey, the two sequels are absolute guff anyway. So I'm sure um, Goliath is better. I can comfortably say Goliath is better than anything that happens in Reloaded or Revolutions. Although reading these did kind of make me want to go back and watch those sequels. And I know you're all screaming at me, don't do it, Joe, they're terrible. Why would you subject yourself to them again? I just want to remember what happened. Basically, just want to remember what happened. Um, so if we've taken anything from this podcast, it's that I'm probably going to watch Matrix sequels again, and The Mask should have a sequel with Cameron Diaz. So, you know, we've definitely achieved something this week, at the very least. Um, but that is it for this week. Don't forget that the next episode of Cinematic Universe will be focused on Captain America Civil War. I'm looking forward to recording the podcast almost as much as I'm looking forward to the movie because with my hopes this high if the movie's disappointing at least I know that we'll have a lot to talk about on the pod Um, but if you're enjoying the show then please do subscribe leave us a review or a rating and head over to patreon.com slash cinematic universe to support us you can find more episodes of cinematic universe on cinematicmultiverse.com or you can get in touch via facebook on twitter at cu underscore podcast or send us an email to cinematicuniversepod.com at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you in a few days.